0: Welcome to Podcastica Patristica, we're your hosts, I'm Tyler Stanley
1: and I'm Gerhard Steuben.
0: Today we're going to be talking about the father of church history, Eusebius of Caesarea, but before we get into that we have an exciting announcement to make. Gerhard and I have started a new podcast coming very soon. Gerhard, you want to tell them about it?
1: Yeah, it's called the Reformation podcast and it's a lot like this podcast. Except for instead of early church, um, it's the medieval, late medieval, uh, Reformation era church. And so we're probably going to structure it like anything that's pretty early is on this podcast. Anything that's pretty late up to the modern era will be on that other podcast. And so we're going to be talking about figures like John Calvin and Martin Luther and uh, Zwingli and Captain Fuckinger. That's a real person.
0: That is a
1: real person. Tune in to find out more about Captain Fuckinger uh, on the Reformation podcast. Um, yeah.
0: I want to reiterate, that's not a joke.
1: <laughs> it's not a joke, it's a real person. A Oof. real
0: person's name.
1: Actually had a surprisingly important impact on history.
0: Listen to the Reformation podcast
1: to, to find, find out why. why. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> Uh, so Tyler, what's been going on in your life lately?
0: Oh, not much. Just finishing up a book.
1: Oh yeah? What what kind of book?
0: It's a book about economics and Christian ethics. Oh nice. It is published through the sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> That's us. It's us. We have a. We are the co-founders of Patristica Press. Um, so if you want to check out patristica.press.com. You can see what books we have for sale. Um, Our podcasts are uh, funded through the press. So if you want to support us, uh, the best way to do that is to buy our books. You can also uh, rate and review our podcasts on iTunes, on Facebook, on whatever podcast uh, app you use. On
1: MySpace. We don't have a MySpace, but you could do it, theoretically.
0: You can write reviews of our books on MySpace. Yeah. Or... Uh, Angel Fire. What was Google's thing that didn't last? Google Plus. Google Plus.
1: Ask Jeeves about it. He'll tell you. He will. Yeah.
0: So, uh remember if you are a listener to this podcast, which you are. You are. That means you have special access to um a sale it on is. our website.
1: So exclusive.
0: It's exclusive to you. But it's only (laughs) exclusive to you because you're the only person that's going to hear this. Yeah. If you type (laughs) anathema into the coupon area on our website whenever you're checking out, you can get 20% off your entire purchase. That is A N A T H E M A, anathema, and you'll get 20% off your whole purchase from Patristica Press. You're welcome. all right before we get into this what are we drinking
1: uh we're drinking new belgium's 1554 uh it is an old beer it's a good beer it's a dark beer uh we're drinking this beer as we're reading eusebius because eusebius is good and old and dense sometimes mm. um, and but malty he's very malty he's malty and he has a dry chocolatey finish mm. uh But Eusebius uh, and 1554 go together in some ways, which Tyler will explain, because this was his idea.
0: Yeah, we're, I chose 1554 for this because it's the only thing I had in my fridge. Yep. So.
1: But it's uh, dry and chocolatey as well.
0: It's a lot better than Virgin Bloody
1: Mary's. (laughs) That was so bad.
0: (laughs) You drink the whole thing.
1: Yeah, it was in front of me. I have to drink it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a moral responsibility.
0: So let's talk about Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius is from Caesarea, and that's in Palestine. And um, he grew up there, and if you remember from our episode on Origen, Origen spent some time in Caesarea whenever he was... Not so well-liked in his home of Alexandria, he moved up there, started a school. One of his pupils was a man by the name of Pamphilus, and Pamphilus was the heir to this school after Origen left. Origen died and actually bequeathed his entire library, which was not only everything that Origen had written, but also just a massive collection of ancient books and uh, compilations of uh, things that Origen had put together, pamphilus had or origin had bequeathed this whole library to the school in Caesarea, which Pamphilus took over one of Pamphilus's pupils was a man named Eusebius Pamphilus's uh, impact on Eusebius's life led to the nickname for Eusebius uh, Eusebius Pamphilius, which means like son of Pamphilus. So that's how closely connected they were. Eventually, Eusebius became the bishop of Caesarea, which is a very important um, see in the ancient world. And Eusebius becomes one of the most important figures for the ancient world, Um, not just because of his own influence, like his own um, work as a bishop, but also because he wrote the history of the ancient church. Eusebius was the first Christian to write a history, and this was so early on in the church, and at such a crucial point in church history, that his work becomes just monumentally important. If we didn't have Eusebius's church history, then we would be really groping in the dark for a lot of things that happened. At his time. And his time happened to be during the Arian controversies. So you're going to hear a lot of stuff that you've heard before, just from a different angle, from Eusebius's angle. But he was heavily involved in the controversies surrounding Arius, the uh, fights that Athanasius put up. He was a close um, companion to Constantine, the emperor, who was the first to adopt Christianity as his own religion. So a very important time in history, and thanks to Eusebius, we know a lot of what happened.
1: So um, when I was in my master's program and Tyler and I were in a class together and on fourth century Christianity, Eusebius's church history is like the only source that I had for a lot of really important um, figures. like the early Gnostic, Valentinus, um, just really important early heretics and early movements in the early church. Um, Eusebius is our only source for a lot of those, and so if we didn't have Eusebius, we wouldn't know much about Valentinus, we wouldn't know much about um, Montanus, we wouldn't know much about all these other really uh, really interesting moments in pre-4th century Christianity. Yeah,
0: and not just the heretics and problems within the church, he also wrote about the martyrs who lived, and the saints who lived and died as faithful Christians, people that we can look up to, and we know more about them because Eusebius took the time to gather the documents, um, uh, mostly thanks to Origen's keeping of records that, uh, We can read about the lives of these people. And Eusebius's church history started from the time of Jesus and the disciples and works its way all the way up through those several hundred years to his own day. So he's, it's a massive work because he's covering a massive time span. So, but that's not all he wrote. He also was a biblical scholar, in the tradition of Origen, he uh, um, wrote commentaries on several books. He wrote a defense of Origen, which we'll get more into his affinity for Origen in a little bit. Uh, and he, when he did his biblical scholarship, he would use the works that Origen had left behind, like the hexapla. If you remember from our episode on Origen, he put together... Um, a parallel version of was it the new testament and or the whole bible i think it was the old the old testament
1: eusebius also wrote this really massive uh two part set of books um called the preparation for the gospel and the explanation of the gospel um and these are i don't even think these have been translated in english have they i don't know um, I know they're in French, but I don't know for sure if they're in English. Like a lot of UCB's stuff is overlooked. Um, so he has these two books. The first one talks about like pagan religion, and um, interestingly, when I was in uh, an Ugaritic class at Baylor, uh, the I was interested in like the Syrian gods, and one of the one of the I think it was one of the goddesses we were talking about and I asked my professor for more information like primary sources on this goddess and he uh, said all right go look at Eusebius' preparation for the gospel book whatever chapter whatever (laughs) and so like this old testament prof recommended an early christian text because he's such a great recorder of things (laughs) that happened before him and he wrote um a big old book of theology that I know has never been translated into english
0: Someone should get on that.
1: Yeah, someone should. I think uh, Oxford is working on a version right now, <laughs> um, but I have yet to see it, so yep. maybe it's not real.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist if you don't see it. That's what I learned. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Eusebius's involvement in the controversies of his day. The controversies surrounding Nicaea. Eusebius was early on a supporter of Arius, and that's probably surprising if you don't know much about Eusebius, or if you don't know much about the controversies. Because Eusebius is considered a respected early church figure, how could he have supported Arius? Well, he did. He wrote defenses of Arius. He um, his theology was actually very close. He wasn't quite as radical as what we might think of Arius, but he was pretty close. And the reason for that is because he was an originist. He was closely, um, was a very close follower of origin. In fact, whenever um, Gerhard and I together took a class on the early Arian controversies, our professor, Dan Williams mentioned Eusebius as the quintessential follower of Origen. Like, if anyone systematized and put to use Origen's methods, it's Eusebius. Um, So he's a true heir of Origen's beliefs. So Origen believed things such as the fact that um, Jesus or the Word wasn't quite on the same level as the Father, like ontologically, so he would call the Father the God, and he would call the Son just God, and Eusebius did that as well. Um, Eusebius didn't like to... he didn't like the idea of saying that there are two eternal beings, or three if you want to include the Holy Spirit, that just wasn't a subject that they talked about much at that point, but he didn't like the idea of speaking of the Father and Son being both eternal, because that means that there are two unbegotten beings, and that's problematic for theology. If God is one, then we can't talk about it like that. So, um, much like Arius, Eusebius would say that, that the Son... That there was never a point in human history or in the history of the universe when the Son and Father didn't coexist. But we can't say that they existed eternally. The Son came from God's will, and other than that, really, we really can't say much. So don't say that they're co-eternal, but also don't say that the Son was never with God in time. Outside of time, don't talk about it. We don't really know
1: and this is like the reason this is important in their day um, was because they didn't have a couple thousand years of Christian um, thought helping them to imagine how God can be both multiple and singular Um, I mean you gotta remember this is 300 years after the first time it would even have been possible for someone to think that Um, really 200 years so, the Arius and Eusebius and all of the people in the what we might today call Arian camp um, were used to thinking of God as one, both in uh, like Jewish faith that birthed Christianity and in philosophical Greek thought. Right, so in um, the more philosophical of Greek writers. There is one God, and that one being is at the highest, right? So ancient Greek thought was very hierarchically structured. There is the highest thing, and that is the one unifying principle over everything. And then everything below that one unifying principle has a place in the hierarchy. And humans are above animals, and this animal is above that animal, and angels are above humans, and things like that. And so it would have been about as strange to say... There are two ultimate principles um, in the universe, that being father and son, to an ancient Greek, as it might be uh, in 1965 to say there are two truths that say different things. Like,
0: Was it electrons that can be in two places at once?
1: Yeah, okay, that's a great example. I was thinking like moral relativ- relativism, trying mm-hmm. to find an example. that That's even a better one, right? So yeah. Tyler, why don't you say a little more about that?
0: I know very little but i mean i know that electrons apparently within an atom can be in two places at once the same electron two places at once
1: yeah, not two yeah. electrons
0: right and so you know before we had you know this molecular te- technology to study molecular level that would have been completely absurd to say and even now we are struggling especially those of us outside of the scientific community who are, you know, this material is being filtered down to us from people trying to explain it the best they can to a lay mind. Like, it doesn't make sense to us. Um, And that's kind of the place where these Christians were, especially in, you know, this turning point around the Aryan controversies where now they're beginning to say there are three, uh, persons of the Trinity, which is one. And it just accepting that and formulating that for the lay mind wasn't making sense. And so these fights were really just about how to interpret the idea of there being one God and three persons. And again, they weren't concerned with the third person at this point. They were trying to distinguish father and son. So
1: they didn't want to be polytheists yeah they didn't want to say there are more than one you know ultimate principle um and i don't think any christians today want to be polytheists either and so they didn't want to say there's more than one ultimate principle but at the same time they didn't want to say that jesus doesn't like exist properly speaking like they didn't want to say that jesus is just a hat that god wears which we call modalism um they wanted to avoid both polytheism and just saying that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different metaphors for the one being. And Arianism and what Eusebius taught were just a way that Christians did that. Yeah. Because they wanted to fit Christian doctrine inside their Greek philosophical heads.
0: Yeah. And that it all ties back. That Greek philosophical structure was... Um, it's called middle platonism but it's just a version of platonism as it was filtered down through the through the years and by the time that it got to this period of history um, Origen was using that to understand christian theology and scripture so like gerhard said there's this hierarchy of beings there's the one ultimate principle that is god um, and then jesus is from the father but It's logically impossible. It doesn't make sense to say that they are the same. So he's one step below. So Eusebius would say, with Origen and Arius, Arius probably less so, uh, but they would say the son is as much participating in the father as anyone can possibly be. But to say that they are exactly the same being is nonsense. And so he has to be a step below And so to someone who truly wants to worship Jesus, to say Jesus is a step below is already problematic.
1: Right. But I mean, I think if you pressed any Christian today, lay or theologian, you would eventually force them into a corner where if they want to retain, like, if they want to remain logical in the way that we think of logic, they would end up saying something like that. Yeah. Or they would end up a modalist. like. If you pressed me, I'd probably have to default to one of the two categories unless I was going to say, nope, not answering any more questions. Yeah. Which is the orthodox thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why, I mean, whenever these heresies came up, a lot of the people who were... A lot of people who got in trouble were the people who said, like, Eusebius of Nicomedia, a different Eusebius from the guy we're talking about now. At one point, he was like, we can't say anything past this point. Like, we can say... God is the God, or the Father is the God, Jesus is God, and uh, Jesus proceeds from the Father, but before time we don't know anything. Like, it's illogical to say that there were two co-eternal things, but I'm not going to speculate on what that means for the existence of the Son, or when and how the Son came into existence. Like, Eusebius of Nicomedia just didn't want to answer those questions it's pretty common for ancient people to say that the reason heresy exists is because people ask questions.
1: So, um, the particular heresy that was vogue during Eusebius's lifetime was Arianism, as we've mentioned. And we've talked a lot about, or a little bit at least about Eusebius and Arianism. Um, but one thing that that same class we're going to be coming back to a lot with Dan Williams, because I mean, He's a great scholar and was influential in the way we think about it for obvious reasons. Um, he
0: taught us this period of church history. We yeah. can't <laughs> we can't draw from much else.
1: <laughs> so he um, talks about Eusebius not only as the quintessential originist, um, like Tyler mentioned earlier, but also as the quintessential uh, third-century writer. Um, Eusebius, according to Dan Williams, um, was the was the picture of what 3rd century and previous eras of theology would have looked like if you put it in a capsule. Um, and the, the Aryan controversy and then the Nicene reaction to the Aryan controversy um, was the new wave of theology crashing down on old wave thinkers. I mean, sort of similar to how like uh, post-modernity comes on the comes on the scene and then you have old modernists still on the scene who don't who still make arguments as if postmodernity never happened like you've got i don't know like richard dawkins who thinks that science can prove everything even though uh, post-modernity has just thoroughly eviscerated that notion hmm. um origin was the third century think- thinker but what exactly does that mean one of the things that it means is that uh, that Eusebius was happy with the old answers he was happy with the contradiction between uh, or the paradox uh, between the son's subservience to the father but still being an object of worship Eusebius was comfortable saying that God is both uh, separate and one and using the old explanations of that but that wasn't um, that wasn't viable for a lot of people after Eusebius' time
0: yeah, there's actually an interesting thing that happened after the Council of Nicaea, which, because of Eusebius's support for Arius at the Council of Nicaea, he was excommunicated. But before the council had wrapped up, um, Eusebius had ultimately signed on to the Nicene Creed, and he sends a letter back to his home church. And in that letter, he tells his church By the way, guys, I signed this creed, but don't worry, uh, this is what I meant whenever I was signing the creed, and so, um, you know, like, I'm not rejecting the stuff that I've been teaching you, I'm not, you know, buying into some new fangled theology. Which is modalism. Which is, the new thing is modalism. The fear is that this new, the, the fear is that the Nicene Creed is modalist, because it's saying that the one true god the first principle uh, is both jesus and the father and that sounds modalist to them um and he wants to say no no no, i did sign the creed but don't worry that's not what i meant when i signed it
1: he definitely says i signed the word homoousios um which is a greek word that's relatively well known today in very niche theological circles but basically just means of the same substance and it's in the nicene creed as it's confessed in liturgical churches today like i believe in jesus one substance with the father right so so he he signs that word but then like tyler says he has to say well this is what we meant when we signed that word yeah and he says in the letter like i made double sure that Constantine and all his boys, uh, were not saying modalism when they wrote that word. I investigated their intentions. The thought behind the word is the word he uses.
0: Yeah. So that's important because in this day, while everyone's trying to figure out what does it mean for Jesus to be God, um, the old way of thinking is they're not the same. The son is different than the father, um, and I think most in that day would probably say a different substance or maybe a similar substance to the father, but same substance, homoousios, is a really controversial thing.
1: Something that was really helpful for me is an analogy that Tyler used in his paper from the other Eusebius. Do you remember that, Tyler, the, the cloak?
0: Oh, yeah. Eusebius of Nicomedia, um, he was supposedly Arian as well, um, and he got a chance to defend himself before Constantine. And while he was in Constantine's presence, so the story goes, he took his own cloak and ripped it in half and said, um, you know, this cloak is no more the same substance now in half. Like, this half is not the same substance as that half. And so he was actually contesting the idea that the son was, like, from the father in the sense of, like, a piece of God was you know, torn off to form the sun, um, the word of God, the logos. And so you can see how the language is just incredibly confusing. And the more they tried to clarify, the more confused it got because people from all these disparate, uh, places with different traditions and different languages, like it just got really muddled and confusing, but it's interesting to see Eusebius is defending the old guard, defending what we might call the originist tradition that the son is, like, the step below the father. And uh, ultimately he's excommunicated and then later brought back into the fold.
1: Which, that's a, like, theological issue that's pretty, I mean, live today, is in what sense is the son... Uh, below the father um and that often gets wrapped up with like gender uh discussions and so uh when i was an undergrad um it was a fairly middle left um place and so there was our i remember our church history professor actually um saying that she the reason she, one of the reasons she was so disappointed in, like, the neo-Calvinists of today is that they, in order to subordinate women, um, teach heresy, like an ancient heresy. And what she meant by that was subordinationism. And what she was meaning by subordinationism is subordination in function, that the son is obedient to the father. Um, instead of the son doing things, the son is doing the things that the father wants the son to do. Um... And so that's like the—when egalitarians engage the subordinationist argument, that's where that goes. But people like John Piper or the complementarians would respond. The ancient heresies like Arianism and what Eusebius taught is subordination in being, not subordination in function. And actually, Eusebius and Athanasius would agree that the sun is subordinate in action— but the the debate was about subordination in essence. And so our modern issue is very different than the ancient issue, even though it's related, and the ancient writers are being used in support of modern positions.
0: So another thing that the letter of Eusebius to his church brings up is ecclesiological structure and the authority of creeds in the early church, like how creeds functioned, especially with respect to the emperor's authority and the bishop's authority over the rest of the churches. So Eusebius, in this letter that he sends back to his church, he says that he's not rejecting the creed that they already had. So notice that he's telling them this creed isn't over our other creed. Um, and in fact he's trying to tell them it doesn't contradict their creed but what I want to point out is creeds in the ancient world and this is going to be my Baptist self coming out
1: but also true, like historically think, true
0: yeah, I mean this is one of the reasons I've stayed Baptist um, you can read that as uh, what's that called? Bias, That kind of bias. Uh, Confirmation bias. You can read this as confirmation bias if you want, but I do think it's true. Creeds in the early church functioned in essentially the same way that confessions do, like a Baptist confession of faith, where in a Baptist church, each church can adopt and write its own confession of faith or they can just adopt like the denominational confession of faith such as in the southern baptist convention they have the baptist faith and message but to be a baptist church you do not have to agree with every jot and tittle in that confession you can have variations of it um, but you are not required to sign on to that in order to be a baptist church and i think that's essentially the way creeds functioned in the early church the Nicene Creed was not authoritative, especially for the first, I don't know, like 100 years. I mean, they basically ignored it after they wrote it until it got brought brought back up again and they had to settle the matter at Constantinople in 381 at that council.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, if you think about the word creed, where does the word creed come from? It comes from the Latin uh, wor- verb credo which means i believe which is the first word in a lot of creeds and so to confess a creed is to say i believe in x y and z right um but when would someone in the ancient world stand up and say i believe in x y and z i mean they didn't write you know memoirs back then they didn't you know people didn't talk about themselves as much as they do today um when would they do that at baptism right so in order to join a church, and that's, I think, an important point that shouldn't be missed and goes exactly with Tyler's point. In the ancient world, you confessed a creed and were baptized to join a church. And that church, um, if it's a true church, links you to all other true churches in the world. Um, But at the end of the day, you're joining one community and one community's uh, faith statement. And so... In the early days, in the early hundreds, things were very disorganized, and every little community was every little community. By the three hundreds and Eusebius' time, there's a lot more structure. There's a lot more bishops, and uh,
0: the hierarchy had basically been established.
1: Right. Uh, it that was actually the subject of the paper for that class, which we're gonna apparently keep coming back to. Um, <laughs> is like how the hierarchy developed from the days of every little community of house churches does whatever the hell they want to, you know, the Pope in, like, the early Middle Ages. Um, But by 300, um, you still have the sense, as Tyler's saying, I believe in order to be baptized and join this church. And so Eusebius says, I'm not saying we all have to adopt Nicaea now. We still have our creed, and that creed is still authoritative for us. Um, and if it agrees with Nicaea, awesome. If it agrees with the church down the street, awesome. But we have joined this church, and we place our bet with this community.
0: And Eusebius would not have signed on to Nicaea if he had not been able to confirm this aligns with, the, you know, what my church has been confessing at baptisms. From the beginning. Yeah. Like, he made sure this is what we have always taught in our church.
1: One might say it's a Baptist approach to <laughs> creeds.
0: You should be Baptist. <laughs> Let's think about Eusebius's view of Constantine. And this is really interesting because Eusebius is an Eastern guy. He's part of the Eastern... Roman Empire. Um, And Eastern people generally didn't trust the emperor. Um, And that's because the previous emperor wasn't a great one. Um, It looked like he was going to be a good emperor. Everyone generally liked him. And then he turned on the Christians and ended up persecuting him. I can't remember what emperor that was. So the Easterners were really suspicious of Roman emperors because they had had Bad luck with Roman emperors. Um, they were more persecuted than those in the western half because uh, during the this was during the super confusing time of emperors. Um, we talked about this in our episode on Constantine, but right before Constantine, it was just nuts about who reigned in which part of the Roman Empire at which time. It's really confusing. I'm I'm like eighty percent sure it was Galerius who was. Right before Constantine in the eastern half of the empire, and he was really brutal against the Christians in that um, area of the world. So the Eastern Christians were suspicious, and so whenever you have this cons- this uh, this council in Nicaea, and Constantine is like the one who um, brings everyone together and sponsors this event they don't really know how to think about Constantine. Even with the Edict of Milan, um, whenever Constantine reaffirmed the toleration of Christian religion, they just didn't know what to think. They were expecting the worst because they had had the worst in recent history. So, even though Easterners generally suspected the empire of the worst, Eusebius was a Huge supporter of Constantine. He loved Constantine. And I think that plays, uh, I think we can look at his eschatology to understand why. Eusebius had something that we might anachronistically call like a preterist view of eschatology, like, and a realized eschatology. So the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, and at some point, it's really actually going to manifest itself, and oh look, it's here now. It's been fully realized. And it's because the empire, you know, the entire known world is now Christian, because Constantine, the emperor, has not only tolerated Christianity, he has now embraced it as his official religion and now rome's official religion is christianity this must be it and eusebius writes um a work called the life of constantine and it's just this glorious book about how wonderfully religious and faithful constantine is now a lot of people read this book and they say Eusebius is just manipulating history, he's whitewashing Constantine, ignoring all the bad things Constantine did, and just writing about how much Constantine loved God, and writing all of his successes, but let's take a step back and consider different types of books that existed in that era. There was a particular genre of literature called the panegyric, and That's what it was. It was just a list of triumphs. It was a positive list of the good things about a particular person.
1: Like a eulogy. Like a eulogy today. You wouldn't talk about, like, oh man, he was a shitty grandpa. You would talk about how great he was in World War II or whatever.
0: Yeah. So when Eusebius writes this, at the very beginning, he explicitly says what his goal is. I'm going to write about how... Constantine was a faithful guy and I'm gonna write about all the good things about his faithfulness, and that's what he writes. So there's kind of a revisionist history view that has come around to say, well, we shouldn't necessarily say Eusebius is uh, manipulating history or that he's untrustworthy. We should just understand that this is a genre of literature. That being said, he does give some pretty high praise to Constantine in this book. Um, borderline calls Constantine like a reincarnation of the Lagos. Like he, Constantine is like the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth here and now. And it's really interesting to think through like the role, like the relationship between church and state and how that plays into the kingdom of God. I mean, you had Christianity for so long had been this persecuted minority. Persecuted, that is a really broad term that could encompass actual Christians being murdered in the Colosseum to, you know, just harassed and like bullied. But throughout Christianity's history up until this point, they hadn't been very popular. And now suddenly... The Emperor has embraced this religion, and it's spreading like wildfire. And so Eusebius really thinks it's happening. The Kingdom of God is finally here.
1: And, like, that, I mean, it makes total sense, right? It Because, I mean, Constantine was, in a sense, a savior, right? He was, in a sense, God's will being done on Earth. And... Um, it was allowing for the flourishing of Christianity, and so like that makes sense even to us today. But I mean, if you imagine it in an ancient um, ancient worldview context, I mean, it wasn't always the case that kings were gods, but it was never far off from that, right? Like in the ancient world, if uh, in ancient super super ancient polytheistic societies, if uh, Athens beats. I don't know Sparta. Then Athena beats whoever the Spartan god is, right? Like in ancient Near Eastern context, if Baal's, if the people who worship Baal win a war against the people who worship Asherah, then they would interpret that as Baal beating Asherah. And so, in ancient thought, up and up until, I mean, really the rise of Christianity. Uh, and monotheism generally, if like political events are intimately tied to theological events. And so, if a new king comes on the scene and says, uh, the religion of the Christians wins and the religions of the Christians should be spread throughout the whole world, what are you going to interpret that as, except for? Uh, the divine christian god conquers and so how could you interpret that except for saying um the kingdom of god is coming god's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven like they didn't have anabaptism they didn't have the reformation they had ancient near eastern ancient greek worldview ancient polytheistic worldviews and so they didn't have shane claiborne and yoder telling us that church and state should be separate or smith or helwis or whoever yeah They had polytheism. And along
0: with that, you also need to remember this is a, you know, pretty thoroughly Platonist, like the Greek worldview is thoroughly Platonist. So Constantine for Eusebius is not just like God is finally on our side, but it's also Constantine is the great philosopher king that Plato (laughs) spoke of like the like plato had this idea of the philosopher king like this being the the best form of government for plato was not democracy it was I think he calls
1: it the worst form of government right uh
0: democracy wasn't the worst but it certainly wasn't the best like it was like fourth or fifth down on the list of types of government that we should have which is interesting in yeah, itself yeah. but the best form of government is to have a philosopher king A truly noble king who isn't a dictator, like, and I'm not using that word in a negative sense. I mean, like, the law of the king is not whatever he thinks of, but is the law that the king distributes is according to logic. And according to this, you know, transcendent truth, this uh, meta-narrative, if you want to use that word... And um, the people in the kingdom are like students, and the king is like the philosopher who is teaching the students proper ethics and even mathematics and truth and history and all this good stuff. And that's what Constantine was, more or less, in Eusebius' mind. Constantine, I mean, if you, even if you look at the way Constantine handled himself in the Nicene controversies, like even I'd say, for who, for who he was, for the way that society was built at that time with, you know, the empire, I think he did a pretty good job. I mean, he gathered the bishops, he wanted a unified, peaceful empire, so he gathered the bishops to decide on this theological matter, and he was going to basically agree with whatever the bishops decided on. Like, he submitted himself to the people who were experts in this. Um,
1: He was pretty obviously a pro arian actually, before Nicaea, and then he starts excommunicating people for not signing on to Nicaea, right? So he really does submit himself to the authority of the theologians. Yeah,
0: and even after that, he's still compassionate to the people who are excommunicated. Eusebius of Caesarea is one of them. Eusebius of Nicomedia is another. He even brings back Arius himself a couple times to exonerate himself. Like, he's giving these people chances to sign on to Nicaea, um, which is pretty cool in itself. Yeah. I mean, Athanasius is really the problem in all of this. He's the one who keeps causing battles whenever it seems like everything is about to start to get peaceful. Athanasius starts fighting again.
1: So maybe uh, Athanasius should have read proverbs more because maybe if you're against the whole world the problem isn't the world (laughs) right like maybe the man who is wise in his own eyes there's more hope for a fool than for him Hmm. but it's kind
0: of like you know today people say like oh if everyone's mad at you you're probably doing something right
1: (laughs) maybe not (laughs) no
0: probably not (laughs) Uh.
1: but uh so i mean to bring it back to eusebius himself like You have Athanasius on the one side, and people like Eusebius on the other, and then they work together. They stop being wise in their own eyes, and then you get to the agreement of 381, which is the Nicene Creed we all quote till today, which becomes the authoritative statement for the church. In my book, Scripture Revisited, actually, I talk about that development quite a bit, Um, and I think that 381 is like the turning point for the church to turn into what we now think of as creedalism. And so it really does become the authoritative statement for the church. Because Eusebius and Athanasius and these two sides can get together and talk.
0: Good stuff. Let's talk about sin. Baby. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Eusebius has an interesting view of sin only because it's different from what we might say today. Um, Eusebius lived in a period before Augustine, and surprise, Augustine was the one who really pioneered the idea of original sin. Even if you believe that's what the Bible teaches, even if you believe Paul essentially taught it, we can't argue with the fact that most Christians did not think that way until Augustine formulated it and in a way that people could really latch on to before augustine there was a view essentially of what eusebius had i think the eastern orthodox church still holds this they never really picked up on augustine's formulation of sin but what do we mean by sin in augustine's view take it away gerhard so our resident calvinist
1: yeah i mean Uh, Calvin was on to something when he said Augustine was the best theologian not the best reader of scripture, but the best theologian Um, Augustine had the most, what we might call today reformed view of sin um, and the most postmodern view of sin um, but that's maybe for another time either today or not Augustine, um, in his argument with a monk named Pelagius um formulated a doctrine known as original sin why did augustine come up with this doctrine well pelagius was saying that we don't need to baptize babies um but augustine said we've always baptized babies pelagius Um, and pelagius says we don't need to baptize babies because babies haven't sinned yet um if babies haven't sinned yet then they don't have any sin that needs forgiving and augustine said hmm (laughs) let me think about that for a minute i can come up with an answer to this aha Adam sinned, and we're all held responsible for Adam's sin. Um, And so babies are guilty of the sin of their ancestors. And so both the sin nature and the guilt of sin is passed down from one person to another. The guilt of sin being God is pissed at you for, you know, something that Adam did. And the nature of sin being, you know, now I'm, you know, lost and locked in sin, and I can never really do anything else um so augustine formulated this notion arguing with pelagius like tyler said no one really had this view before augustine that doesn't mean it's wrong i mean augustine is like what really early 300s late 300s early 400s like that's still really really early so you know whatever but augustine is the one who comes up with the idea but before that people held a less drastic notion of sin uh Tyler, I talked about the more reformed perspective. You want to talk about the less reformed perspective?
0: <laughs> I think before we start this episode, Gerhard compared it to modernism, and I think that's helpful. Um, think about John Locke in the Enlightenment period. He talked about people being a tabula rasa, a blank slate. So when you're born ethically, philosophically... Everything about you, your mind is just a blank slate. And then things are put onto that slate. And eventually somewhere down the line, there's something bad on that slate. And at that point, that's when you need to be forgiven. Uh, And so that's, from what I understand, essentially, I mean, I grew up in Protestant tradition. So this Augustinian concept of original sin is just really ingrained in me. So it's hard to think outside of it. And I'm still formulating whether I agree with it and to what extent I agree with it. So um, keep that in, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I think that's a helpful way to think about the way pre-Augustinian people and even Eastern Orthodox today think about sin and the need for forgiveness. Like, interestingly... Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox still baptize infants, hmm. yeah. so it is interesting. they didn't latch on, they didn't find the need for Augustine's uh, defense in order to keep doing what they had been doing. But they don't buy into this idea that sin has been passed down. I mean, partly because the Bible says, like, you know, like the blind man that Jesus healed who sinned, was it himself or was it his parents? Like, No, you're not blamed for what your parents did. Um, What is it in Isaiah or Ezekiel? Ezekiel, yeah. Ezekiel, he says, you know, never again will you say that, you know, the parents have eaten bitter grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge or become blunt. Like, that whole passage means that, like, when a parent sins, the children are punished for it. And Ezekiel says, no, don't say that that's wrong and eastern orthodox people everyone who rejects original sin and original guilt especially that's what they're saying like i'm not punished for what adam did i'm punished for what i did unless i'm covered by the grace of god
1: that uh come back at it from a traditionalist reformed perspective which i don't believe in original sin or guilt or any of that um at least like as it's normally formulated i think it's a good philosophical metaphor but i don't think that there was a historical adam who ate a piece of fruit and now i'm gonna die for it but paul did um he says it pretty clearly um i didn't read this read paul like this until i read a little book that john piper actually wrote on it uh, which convinced me that paul at least thought that uh the reason people die like physically die is because of adam's sin he makes a really compelling case for that in Romans 5. I think that the reason that Paul thinks that the reason people physically die is because Adam ate a piece of fruit in a, you know, Middle Eastern garden somewhere.
0: Okay, so now here's the deep theological question that everyone's probably wondering. How can you disagree with Paul? Like was it Adam eating a piece of fruit that he was told not to eat? Is that the reason that we all die? And if Paul thought that, you know, like in his explanation of the gospel, is that belief central to the gospel?
1: Um, so, not to keep plugging, but I'm going to keep plugging my book, (laughs) Scripture Revisited, because I talk about that at pretty decent length. Um, but I mean, nobody, 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 not the most staunch, um, theologian today would say if paul believed in a three-tiered universe then we should also believe in a three-tiered universe right like um i think at the end of the day it's pretty clear that ancient conceptions of cosmology and history are not binding on us today um and so even if paul rejected the concept of north america that doesn't mean we today have to reject the concept of north america because that's not related to what paul was designated to teach that's not the realm in which paul was authoritative right like so i have um up until june i work um at a business and i in the business uh there are people who are over me in authority right so uh they can say hey take out the trash and i'll say cool i'll take out the trash now um but one of my actually both of my bosses at that business are also friends of mine and i'm gonna see them later today to play dungeons and dragons (laughs) uh that's true and if they said hey take out the trash i would say no you don't have authority." Authority over me in this context. We're not at business. Um, so, people are authoritative over realms. Um, Paul was authoritative over the realm of the gospel, not over the realm of history or science. Um, and so, the gospel says Jesus is the new creation, um, Jesus is what humanity should be like, and the answer to humanity's sin. Paul was wrong that humans die because adam sinned like that is in the bible and it is wrong it is not true it is just a...
0: like in job it says that there are sheds carrying snow and rain above the sky and whenever god wants it to rain or snow he opens up the doors and snow falls like that's a scientific statement i mean it's poetic but
1: at least Job thinks that God is up there and we're down here, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. At, at least that. And that's not true, right? Like, at, the, at some point we're going to have to call it and say that the earth, you know, is not the center of the universe or whatever. Like, so, uh, Paul thought that, Paul thought in terms of original guilt at least for physical death. But that is not true because Paul was wrong about one human existing six thousand years ago did that answer the question pretty well so like that's how paul can both be wrong and an authoritative messenger of the gospel because that's not about the gospel that's about history and what paul thought about the gospel actually comes before what he thought about history and everything is interpreted through the lens of the gospel
0: and like i said earlier i don't really know where i stand on this issue it's not something that i think about a lot so um I mean, in the end, I think we can say belief in original sin and original guilt is not necessary for salvation. It's, I mean, even if you think, like, this is, you know, really important, we can't say that the entire Eastern Orthodox Church and everyone before Augustine...
1: And a lot of people after Augustine. And,
0: all, you know, yes, all of these people are in hell because they didn't accept original sin and original guilt. Like, that's absurd.
1: I don't even think it was one of the five fundamentals of fundamentalism. Really? I don't think so. It was the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, physical resurrection. I don't think sin was one of them. Hmm.
0: That's interesting.
1: You heard it first here. Sin might not be, have been one of them. <laughs>
0: Breaking news. A hundred years ago, <laughs> a document sin was not on it. If you turn out to go look this up or you already know that sin was in fact on the, in the five fundamentals, Uh, just keep it to yourself. We don't need to know when we're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We operate better when we think we're always right. (laughs) Uh, Wise in his own eyes. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we can tie all of this discussion about sin back to Eusebius. Here's a quote from Eusebius that he, he's talking about the idea of human nature with regard to sin and he actually does not believe that humans are by nature sinners like we are not born sinners it is our own choices he's big on free will gerhard
1: yeah (laughs) Arius. wait no yeah orthodoxy
0: (laughs) yeah see so here's something from eusebius he says Everything is good which is according to nature. Every rational soul has naturally a good free will, formed for the choice of what is good. But when a man acts wrongly, nature is not to be blamed, for what is wrong takes place not according to nature, but contrary to nature, it being the work of choice and not of nature. And you see, that's exactly the opposite of what Augustine said. Augustine said, because of Adam's sin, all humans, our nature is now fallen. We only have the choice to choose this sin or that sin. And it's only by the grace of God that compels us, um, contrary to our free will, because our free will is only to sin. Um, the grace of God compels us to live righteously, and we are saved by God. Um Eusebius says, no, God said it is good after he created the world, and we can't say human nature is inherently bad. So we are inherently good, but at some point in our lives, we choose to do bad. So there's your little summary of the conversation between original sin and those who reject it.
1: So you may not um, have realized it, but we've, in good postmodern form, given you a narrative uh, sort of overview of Eusebius's theology. We talked about his theology proper, like he believed in, you know, the one God. We talked about his Christology, and um, we talked about his notions of sin, um, and implied in notions of sin is notions of salvation. So we've talked about a lot about Eusebius's theology, maybe without even have said saying explicitly. This is Eusebius's theology.
0: Hmm.
1: What other realms of Eusebius's theology have we not talked about? We talked about even his theology of the church, right? Like, talked about yeah. And his, the eschatology. Like, we've hit almost every systematic theological point without even realizing it, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, now let's talk about his legacy and <laughs> the influence that he had on those who came after him. Uh, like we said, Eusebius wrote... The church history; um, it was, it is his enduring legacy. Of all of the things that he did, as important as they are, his church history is what, like, the central thing that he's known for. He is the father of church history; the first person that that wrote what was going on with the church. So, Eusebius's church history ends right around the time. He, he tells the story of Constantine's death, and I think his history ends shortly thereafter. Eusebius actually dies in 340. After Eusebius uh, finishes off, several upcoming young energetic historians decide that they're going to pick up where Eusebius left off. So now we have histories of what comes after Eusebius. And even in these writings, they retell, I think pretty much every one of them retells the Arian controversy, because not all of them like Eusebius' take on the history of that period. So we have Socrates Scholasticus, Sozomen, uh, later on we'll get a guy named Philostorgius, who he actually is on the far Arian side of things, like believed more radically heretical than Arius did. Theodorate. So these historians come in and pick up where Eusebius left off, and like Eusebius, this is their enduring legacy. They give us information that, without it, Gerhard's and my job here would be much more difficult. They give us information into the early church world, into its theology and politics, and its the battles that are going within, and how they interact with the world without. Without them, this would be a tough job. So thanks, Eusebius.
1: Yeah, um, but Eusebius has gotten a lot of flack uh, for his history writing. Even if he's the only, um, he, if even if he's the like channel through all which all this information comes to us, he's not necessarily always right, um, and the distaste for Eusebius and distrust of Eusebius goes all the way back to uh, Edward Gibbon in the 18th century, who controversially didn't like Eusebius, or didn't believe Eusebius. I mean, it goes to the modern day. I mean, it's really fashionable now to say, man, Eusebius was so stupid and biased, and uh, you can't trust anything at all ever. I mean, just in general, but also about Eusebius. Yeah. Um, It's kind of
0: in vogue in academic circles to reject whatever the early thinkers said. Right. Like you can't trust Eusebius because he's too biased for Constantine.
1: And I mean there's reasons for that. Um one of my other papers in actually a reformation class um I there's reasons that I won't go into for this, but I traced Eusebius's use of Philo and Eusebius said, man, the early Christians were so generous, and they gave all their possessions away, and they were all basically good socialists, um, that's what Eusebius says, and then some Reformation Anabaptists picked that up, uh, but if you go back and read Philo, he's not talking about Christians at all, he's actually talking about like an Essene community, um, the same community, the same type of community that gives us the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and it they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're not good socialists, but they are like they live in a community. It's like a—it's more like a David Koresh, um,
0: without stockpiling their ammunition.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more like a David Koresh, but their their weapon is prayer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like and but Eusebius uses this as an explanation of Acts two forty-two, where all the Christians are so generous, um, and so he's not always trustworthy.
0: But there's a difference between like. We can see at the times when Eusebius got it wrong, and maybe, you know, we can speculate as to whether he intentionally got it wrong, you know, were these alternative facts or not, but by and large, I think we can trust Eusebius to give us history, like, no history is unbiased, we we are always looking at history through the lens of whatever person is giving us the history. And as good postmoderns, we can accept that and recognize that and even learn to appreciate what that gives us. We understand more about Eusebius because of the way he tells us how history happened from his angle. And so while we can... We And should do the, you know, people in the academic community who are doing this, you know, intensely should trace it back. Like, well, was Eusebius right about that community? No, he was wrong. We should trace that back, but we shouldn't distrust Eusebius because there are times when he was wrong.
1: And like, he was wrong about his interpretation of that community, but he wasn't fundamentally wrong about the community. I mean, it was a group of people who like had a common pool of possessions. He was wrong in interpreting them as Christians, he was wrong in interpreting their acts as generosity, but the I mean he does give us concrete history. So I mean he's not he's not just going to lie and make something up, right? Mm. Like he's not just going to create a group of people in order to make a moral point. He's going to interpret something that's actually trustworthy for his audience. And so Even if you think that Eusebius is wrong about a particular interpretation of a historical event, you can't say, so therefore that historical event didn't happen. You have to give a more compelling interpretation of that historical event. Hmm. And so you have to build on Eusebius, actually.
0: Yeah. Most of that, you know, most of you listening may not, this may not be your thing. You may not be doing the dirty work of history, of interpreting the history of... Of someone else's <laughs> history. So, but it is still important for you to understand, that even if this isn't your thing, the work that goes into understanding history and historiography, like the study of history and how it's written. Um, this impacts the way history is told. And as you read the way people tell stories of what is happening in today's world, you understand, like... If a Trump supporter writes a story about an event, it's going to look different from a story written by a liberal about that same exact event. And so that's what historiography is, is looking at, we're trying to discern these different polarized perspectives from way back then. And it's difficult enough to do that now. (laughs) so
1: interesting example of that was like right after i watched black panther which you should go see if you haven't if you're the only person in the world who hasn't seen it yet mm-hmm. uh i found a breitbart article about it and they uh, they tried to co-opt moments in the narrative in order to make them like a neo-conservative um like to make it a neo-conservative story yeah but they weren't free to just make up parts of the movie that didn't happen they had to say oh the general who rides the rhinoceros at the end and who is anti-immigrant is actually the hero of the story and yeah. you know, he expresses black panther mm. but they had to use actual history in order to make their inaccurate point mm.
0: and so years from now someone is going to pick up that breitbart article <laughs> and figure out the original source of their story and they'll watch black panther and figure out no that's not what they were talking about <laughs> Well, until next time, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.
1: Yeah.